Greetings to the brightest audience in the country, and welcome to Theology Thursday. I'm Nicole McBurney. Every weekday, we bring you the news of the day, the culture, and science from a Christian worldview. But today, join me and Pastor Bob Enyart as we explore the source of our Christian worldview, the Bible. So in the, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Elsewhere, God says, if you commit perjury, then you shall be punished according to the severity of the accusation. So you're on the witness stand and you falsely accuse someone of a capital crime. Then you should be executed. If you falsely accuse someone of assault, then you should be flogged. If you falsely accuse someone of theft, you pay restitution to that person of the amount in question. Like if you lied and you said, well, my coworker stole $200 from the cash register and then you are convicted of that lie, of that perjury, then you owe the coworker $200 because you accused him of that. Now you've got to pay because you lied. All right, in the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. But to expand it, to read the whole verse 21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, coveting is not a crime punishable by the government. It is a sin leading to theft and adultery and murder. Right? If you covet, if you want what your neighbor has, he has a nice wife and you want her. That leads to adultery. He has a lot of money and you want it. That leads to theft. And those crimes lead to murder. Is that generally true, Dale? Have you noticed? Adultery, when it's commonplace, it leads to murder. Absolutely. We hear from a police officer who's been on the force for how many years? 37 years on the force in a major metropolitan area. So that's why God outlawed these things because they lead to death. Whereas coveting isn't a crime, but it's a sin, punishable not by the government, but by God for all those who never humble themselves and turn to Christ for forgiveness. Verse 22, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me, that is, to Moses. So God wrote them after he had spoken to the people, and then he gave the tablets to Moses. Verse 23, So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders came to Moses, and you said, Surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more than we shall die. And I think there was something to that because they knew how evil they were. And how righteous God was. Verse 26. For who is there of all flesh 
who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived. And we'll see that God agreed with them because he knew how sinful they were also. And if the two got close, so to speak, a little too close, then God's wrath might break forth and destroy them. So verse 27, they said to Moses, you go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say and tell us that the Lord our God, tell us all that the Lord our God says to you and we will hear and do it. Then the Lord heard the voice of the words. Verse 28. Then the Lord heard the voice of your words and when you spoke to me and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. So God agreed, even with these stiff-necked people. You're right, you better not be too close to me because I might just wipe you out. Now, they were stiff-necked, they were evil. So why did God agree with them? Well, because they were right. You don't have to be godly to be right. Abimelech had taken Abraham's wife, Sarah, and he talked to God and God agreed with him. He was evil, but he was right. In the case of the prostitute mother who saved her baby before Solomon, she wasn't godly, but she was right. In the case of the good Samaritan, he was right. He, he showed how to love, even though he was a Samaritan. And Jesus said, the Samaritans don't know God. So you don't have to be godly to be right, even on a spiritual matter. And what does that do to the Calvinist doctrine of total depravity, where they say you could never know if you're not redeemed, you could never know the truth. Well, then why does God agree with so many people who are not saved? Because they were right. And the Good Samaritan even was the example of love. Verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be, whip, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me and I will speak to you, Moses, all the commandments, the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So don't turn to the right nor the left. And from there comes the analogy that I frequently use. People say, why is God so ruthless and so rigid, demanding that men follow him unswervingly? Why? Because there's no other way to eternal paradise. That's the only way. Eternity is far away. And the further your destination, the more accurate your trajectory must be. If you're shooting for the moon, right? Tonight, this is Halloween. And we have a full moon tonight. What is that? The first time in how many years? 46. 46 years. First time there's a full moon on Halloween. Well, if you're shooting for the moon in a spaceship and you're off by one degree, you're going to miss by thousands of miles. 
If you're shooting for Mars and you're off by a degree, you'll miss by millions of miles. Well, how about all the stars out there? The nearest star, Alpha Centauri, is 24 trillion miles away. So if you miss, if you're off by one degree, you'll miss by billions of miles. But what if you're headed to the furthest star, to the furthest point in the universe, and you're just a little bit off? <laughs> you might miss your destination by, by a quadrillion miles. And if your objective lies not across the universe, but across infinity, beyond all current existing time and space, then you better be on the mark. Thus, we have the necessary reason for God's rigidness. Don't turn aside to the right nor to the left or you'll miss it. It's God's way or an eternity outside of heaven because you'll miss it. There's just no other option. Verse 33. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. Chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, God of your fathers, has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, and liberals are against milk, right? They say it's from the devil. But uh, God promised Israel a land flowing with milk and honey, where they could eat all the meat they want to eat. So, so much for pita. All right. Now, the beautiful Jewish prayer of the next few verses, we call the Shema. Well, they call it the Shema, which is the first word. Hear, hear, O Israel. The word in Hebrew is Shema. In the Hebrew manuscript, the last letter of this word is majuscular, which means it's larger than the other letters. And not only that, the last letter of the last word, their word for one, that's also larger. And that's to emphasize the primacy of this testimony. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's pretty neat. The Hebrew says Jehovah, our Elohim, is one Jehovah. Now, God is one. That's what distinguishes Judaism and Christianity from all the other false religions of the world. We are monotheists. We believe in one God. Now, of course, Islam also believes in one God. And Islam, in the Quran, it frequently references Abraham and Moses and, well, Moses, I forget all of a sudden. I got to take that back. I don't recall. But it frequently 
references early Genesis history, Abraham, and then into the New Testament, Jesus and Mary. And so Islam is a perversion of biblical faith. Well, one God, there is one God, of course, that makes tremendous sense. If there's a a creator, if there's a creation, there has to be a creator. And there can't be three or four different creators because then that would just be uh, avoiding the, the real question, who created them? And you get back to the original creator and you say, that's God. There's only one God. There has to be one God. Well, Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And Elohim is plural. The word for God in Hebrew is El. Elohim means the gods. Just like cherub is an angel and cherubim are multiple. And seraph and seraphim and so on. It's a common way to make a plural in Hebrew. So Elohim means the gods. And the Greeks would speak about the gods and they hoped the gods would not be angry with them. Well, Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, the gods, he created the heavens and the earth. And you scratch your head and you say, well, why is there a plural subject in the singular verb? In the beginning, the gods, he created That doesn't make sense. If you were in third grade in homeschooling and you wrote a sentence like that, you'd get, you'd get it wrong. You'd get a zero because it's incorrect. And Moses gave us the beginning of the first greatest book in the history of the world. And he was educated in Egypt in Pharaoh's household. He was obviously a brilliant man to write the Pentateuch. How do you start out with that kind of a blunder in the first verse? It wasn't a blunder. It was the beginning of the entire Bible. And the Bible reveals one God existing in three persons. So our one God is of a plurality. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So the Hebrew Scriptures make use of the term Elohim to speak of the one God. As we read here, Jehovah, our Elohim, is one Jehovah. Our the gods is one God. That's pretty neat. Thus, we get to the command in the next verse that Jesus referred to as the most important. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, are we human beings able to love God? As Christians, are we able to love God? Of course we are. God created us to love Him. But there's a teaching going around the Christian church. Who's the author, the psychologist author? Larry Crabb. I think it comes from him. I'm sure it does. That we are incapable of loving God. We cannot love God. We can't love our wives, our neighbors, Only God could love them through us. And so then we are just portals. We're zero-sum portals. And God could love himself through us, but we can't add nothing to that. Well, that's absurd. God created us not so he'd have a mirror to bounce his love off of, but so that we could love him and love one another. 
And God wants us to love him with all our heart, soul, and strength. And Jesus added, and he could add, you know, because after all, he is God. Jesus added, and love him with all your mind. In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so the law, the Mosaic law, can be divided into those two tiers, laws toward God and laws toward men. And then a third tier of the law is symbolic law like circumcision and the Sabbath and the dietary law. Verse 6, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So you can have a wristband or a headband and hang jewelry on it. And inside the jewelry are tiny little scrolls that will have Hebrew scripture written on them. You could buy them in gift shops in Israel or I'm sure in New York or elsewhere or on the Internet. And we call them phylacteries from the Greek for these frontlets. Verse 9, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house And on your gates, so it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, Then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. Now, through Moses, God discussed the Jews taking oaths. But through Jesus, God said, gave an even higher standard. Don't take oaths. Just be truthful all the time. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Always tell the truth and you have no need of taking an oath. Thus, we have long opposed the American and British custom, the common law custom of swearing in witnesses on the witness stand so that they will not break the ninth commandment. Do not commit perjury. When you swear in a witness, now you have to tell the truth because you swore in. Well, that encourages perjury because the implication is, well, we all lie all the time. So now in a certain box, when it's most critical, now you can't lie. Well, that doesn't work. It's not possible that that little bit of legalism, taking that oath, can undo the weight of that implication that we're all liars. And when you swear in, you guarantee you're going to get more lies on the witness stand. Verse 14. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples 
who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. And remember, Massa, that's where the Jews were complaining. They're in the wilderness. They just got into the wilderness and they don't have any water. And they're saying, ah, we were brought here in the wilderness so this desert would kill us. That's why you brought us here. And God stood on a rock before Moses and had Moses strike the rock, which was a symbol of Jesus Christ being smitten. And then from the rock that is from Christ, symbolically, the living water poured forth. Verse 17. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers, to cast out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has spoken. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? So, They're saying, well, your descendants will wonder about some of these rules. Hey, Dad, why do we keep these rules? Now, that obviously is not referring to don't murder and don't steal because much of the world intuitively has laws against that on their books. But these will be kids will say, hey, Dad, why do we keep the Sabbath and why do we circumcise and why do we have this dietary law and wear these weird things on our heads? Why do we do that? So, son, let me tell you, verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. Then he brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to give our fathers. And notice why God gave these rigid laws. Verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. The laws were given for our good to give us life, eternal life. Now notice the difference between our covenant of grace and Israel's covenant of law. Under grace, you're justified, that is, you're made righteous apart from the law. But under the Mosaic covenant of law, verse 25, then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So it will be righteousness for us If we keep these laws, then we'll be righteous. The Apostle Paul says, under the covenant of grace, Paul says, if you do no work, if you don't do good works, then you're justified, then you're righteous. Romans 10, Paul says, there's two ways to be righteous. One is by the law, the other is by faith. Moses' method, by the law, you have to do the works of the law to be righteous. And by faith, 
You have to believe in Jesus Christ. That's it. Chapter 7. And we'll get through this pretty quickly. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. For they have lost sight of the eternal prize. They don't even care to aim for it. And if you let them live, they will bring your children down into hell with them. Tartlene, you sound like you're having such a hard time. No, that's okay. I hope you, I hope you survive the study. On the other hand, if you, if you utterly destroy them, then your children will have a better chance of growing into adults in righteousness. And their children, if you kill them, their children who are under the age of accountability, they'll end up before Almighty God. And all the children who died in the flood and at the hands of Moses and Joshua, those children are now, they then were standing before God. And I don't believe you lose your free will at any time. And so those kids, they're not guilty. They're under the age of accountability. They're standing before God. They could decide to stay or leave. Just like we can, they make their choice then as they grow up in heaven. Verse 3, Nor shall you make marriages with them, these heathens. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. And that's exactly what did happen. For an extreme example, Solomon took 1,000 women, many of them from the pagan nations around him, and he worshipped their gods of Molech and Baal and Ashtoreth, and he built altars to those false gods on the hills around Jerusalem. On On the Mount of Olives, he built an altar to Molech, where most likely the Jews took their sons and their daughters and burned them alive on Molech's altar to sacrifice their own children. Disgusting wickedness, like abortion, like Planned Parenthood. Verse 5, But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. Remember the Afghanistan Taliban? They destroyed that Buddha, the 2,000-year-old Buddha carved into the side of the mountain. Now, if they had been Jews, those Taliban, not Muslims, and if they had governed 3,000 years ago, not today, then they would have had divine authority to do that. As it stands, they were only within their right if that Buddha was on their property. If, if they owned it, then they could destroy it. And they don't have to worry about the sensitivities of Hindus because they worship stone anyway. 
And if it was on my property, I would destroy it. I don't care how old it is. Unless maybe I could sell it and get more money for it. I don't know. I'd have to figure that out. Verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the Exodus became the defining moment in the history of Israel. They forevermore became the people of the Exodus, the ones delivered by the deliverer. And Moses became a symbol, a type of Christ. 